Welcome to Science Radio, a space where we chat about culture, belief, wellness, and current events, all through the lens of faith. Well, welcome back to another episode of Science Radio. I'm your host, Jesse, and today I get to welcome back the weary traveler himself, the filmmaker, documentarian, film critic, Mr. Mark Hadley. Welcome back, Mark. Hey, Jesse. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me back on. You are a, a busy man. You've been having a massive year, so I'm really stoked that we get to sit down for another conversation in the midst of it all as we <laughs> as we kind of wind down. I, I, I wasn't. I, I should have asked you before. Are you starting to wind down for the year, or is there still much to come? <laughs> I, I let's see. I will be starting to wind down. I, I'm working on two different documentaries and a TV series at the moment. And I will probably be winding down in May. Okay, cool. So, <laughs> so, so just in time for your Christmas break, you know, you'll just slip it in there, right? Yeah, yeah. It's unconventional. Somewhere around the first school holidays, we'll be doing Christmas in the Hadley household. <laughs> oh goodness! This this is what this is the life of a filmmaker, I imagine. This is sort of half of the course. Uh, it is. Well, it's funny the way it works because, you, as you know, I specialize in documentaries, and what normally happens is a documentary has a two-year life cycle. So you will probably spend about six months in pre-production. You'll spend, you know, three or four months in production, as in the the shoot itself. And then you go into post-production and post-production, which is the editing and all that sort of a grading and those sort of things can take as much as a year. Wow. So, you know, people, you get together at one Christmas and people say, what are you working on? You tell them what you're working on. And then you get together at the next Christmas and they say, what are you working on? And it's exactly the same thing you were working on last Christmas. <laughs> and they think, well, what so, have you, you know, been this, doing this whole time? Seriously. I know. What are you on, doing all this time? Get on with it. People stop asking me. <laughs> People stop asking me. It's just the same, that, same answer. That probably sounds like a nice thing for you, you know, because it feels like repeating yourself over and over again must get tiring after a while. <laughs> it is. It is. We actually have a... Because the process is wearing, it takes you know such a long time to do uh, a production. We actually have a saying in my industry: if you don't totally hate what you're working on by the end of it, you didn't really give enough. And so, <laughs> and so I feel like when I'm coming to the end of that two year cycle, I hope none of my clients are listening. Uh, but when you come to the end of, of that two year cycle, you're really ready for a new production. You know, I, bet. It's, I bet something else would be great. Yeah. Oh wow, that's that's and yet. In the midst of all of it, you still find some time to write. You still find time to do podcasting and all this other stuff. So I take my hat off to you, man. It's it's a heck of a job. Well, let's just say that if you took your hat off, we'd discover more hair than I've currently maintained because <laughs> the anxiety gets to you. What can I say? Yeah, I, I, I bet it does. I bet it does. Well, look, as is sort of in some ways, writing, is, especially for a magazine or a publication process, is kind of like a shrunken down version of doing a documentary because, you know, you wrote this article for us that we'll talk about in a minute several months ago, and uh, we put it through our editorial process several months ago, and it's just now going to be in the hands of the people who are going to read it. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, I must admit being in would have been, I want to say, September, doing editing on an article about Christmas was a bit of a strange experience, but here we are. It's just around the corner. The year has just kind of slipped by just like that. And we're talking about an article that you wrote for the December issue of the Science Magazine. And 
I have to say, as somebody who appreciates a good title, and God said, let there be snow. It's just, it's a great, it's a great <laughs> title. We are talking about Christmas movies. Now, I must admit, I am not a huge, I'm not going to say a huge fan. I'm not, I'm not especially when Christmas comes around, wanting to crowd around the TV and watch your classic Christmas movies. And there are, of course, many classic Christmas movies out there, you know, from Miracle on 23rd Street, 24th Street. I'm blanking on. 34? 34. No, 34. It's a number. (laughs) (laughs) To Home Alone. Miracle. Miracle on 34th Street. There you go. Home Alone. They're all there. Die Hard. I know that's potentially a controversial one. And yet, strangely, a Christmas film. Yeah. 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 Released to the Christmas market. Now, you look strangely, it's not surprising that given, you know, you being a a man in his 30s, that you're not a big purveyor or a digester of Christmas films because you're not the key market. Mm. The key market for the Christmas film is is our grandparents you know, or our parents, so to speak, depending on your age. It's women in their 40s and 50s. It's men of a similar age, though particularly women. And it's a sort of age bracket that longs for a time that was, or maybe never was, but it's a sort of a past which they're trying to recapture. And Christmas movies just specialize in recapturing that sort of idyllic age when families came together, when big meals were eaten, when crises were solved, when presents were given, when enmity was put apart, put aside for the sake of of this greater good, whatever you call that greater good. And you know, in a for previous generations, that greater good was specifically religious. Though these days, the greater good has probably been watered down a bit to peace or love mm-hmm. or happiness. You know, without actually working out where those things come from, mm. it's like the 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 key components are there, but they've kind of been painted over a little bit, and they've kind of been you know sanded down to still kind of be the same, but a little bit different. Yeah, it's it's what you say. Uh, there is a palette to the Christmas film, you know, and there are certain things that get painted onto it to begin with, simplistically. Christmas films are red, green, and white. You know, the, you just notice if you if you look at their posters or you look at their just their color palettes, they they, they suggest a, a northern European, you know, or North American Christmas. Mm. Red for Santa, green for the trees, white for the snow, and these elements are all there. You know, we in Australia are going to be suffering forty degrees plus. You know, in this summer and in that time, we will digest films which are forty below, you know, Fahrenheit. You know, so and, and we'll do that. Yeah, we'll do that without even blinking, yeah. because that's what Christmas is. In fact, in the South, you'll find plenty of kids wishing for a white Christmas. Mm. You know, which is something that they're just never going to experience in this side of the globe. So, yeah, there are expected things that go into a Christmas film that not just Santa or, you know, elves, reindeer, and Christmas trees, or presents even, but thematic things that go inside a Christmas film that, that make it what we would call a Christmas film, what we would instinctively recognize mm. as a Christmas film. 
Well, let's talk about that. It's quite funny that we're, we're talking about this right now because I went home last night and on the TV, not under my control, but there was a, <laughs> there was a movie playing, a movie that I've never seen before, but it was, it was the cookie cutter. There's a, a young guy who is part of a nigger rich family. He goes home for Christmas, but he doesn't really appreciate what his family does. And there's a young woman who I'm trying to piece together the plot in my head. She's a baker or a, a cook or something. And there's this big, big dinner that she has to prepare for, for this mega wealthy family. And they can't really understand why, you know, the, the matriarch of the family is so intent on bringing all these people together. And what's, it's just a dinner. What's, what's so important about it? And of course, over the, the course of the movie, they discover, you know, family love, togetherness, you know, reaching out to their neighbor. And of course, they're not just a, a mega rich family. They're also extremely uh, generous and, you know, they have a community center and they're really helping their community and um, he doesn't even appreciate it. And over the, over the course of the film, you know, she's just like, man, you've got such a great family. You're so wealthy, but you're also just so generous. And, you know, there's conflict and there's cookies and there's snow, <laughs> of course. And yeah, ultimately, of course, he leaves his big city life and he comes back to the country town and happily ever after. It's like, mm, of course, sometimes it's the man. Sometimes it's, I, I, I'd say it's mostly usually the woman who's like the, the city, the city dweller, the high flying executive, the editor or whatever. And there's this conflict of values. There's these, these clashing of, of worlds that come together. So, Talk through some of these themes. What, what's there's there's a rule book. There's sort of like a, a structure that almost all of these movies follow, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, what you've hit upon is a number of the key themes that turn up in Christmas films, and, and I would think that one of the ones you, you hit straight away was an end to work. There is, you know, work has its boundaries, and they're supposed to they're, they're not supposed to be transgressed. In our normal lives, you know, we've all got responsibilities and we've all got bosses and we all have people we have to answer to and we all have bills that have to be paid. But there comes a time in the year, Christmas, where in which work is supposed to be set aside, where in which there's real rest. So to begin with, it doesn't surprise me that the, the matriarch and the story you're talking about is saying, come aside, you know, step back from these things and enjoy something else. And that's a very common Christmas theme. The idea that, that we have actually got to step back from the world and we have got to find peace. Now, I mean, it's as old as what I would argue is the second best known Christmas story. If the first is the nativity, then the second best known story has to be a Christmas carol by, you know, Charles Dickens. You know, it's been Ebenezer Scrooge has turned up on our screens in so many different ways from the Muppet version through to cartoon versions, things like that. You know, and you know, Michael Caine, I remember. I mean, everybody's had a go at Scrooge at some point. And that's the idea that there is a, an obsession with work that can overtake us so that we actually step back and we fail to see the real joys, the real benefits, the real blessings, which coalesce around Christmas. Mm -hmm. And so Dickens writes a story in which a Scrooge character has to 
realize that that money and profit taking and business success is not the be all and end all. And so eventually ends up in Bob Cratchit's home. And for those people who've seen it, a dozen different types of this story, they know that he he realizes by virtue of looking at Christmas past, present and future, that he needs to actually embrace this idea of Christmas. But I mean, it's well worth asking where this idea of an end to labor comes from. And I would argue that it actually comes from the original Christmas story. Now, in the, in the original Christmas story with the birth of Jesus, we see God reaching into the world and bringing an end to striving and a smoothing out of, of levels of society so that we are all very much on the same uh, level receiving what we need mm. you know, at Christmas time. It's something we may not realize, like in many Christmas stories, we may not realize that we need it until we find it and we see it. So this this need for an end to labor and an enjoyment of peace and the gift that we really quite need you know, has played itself out, particularly in Western society, has played itself out in story after story. Now, they were originally really quite Christian stories. You know, People were coming back and realizing that what they needed is, is Christ in Christmas. But now, we've, in an age in which we are trying very hard to separate God from Christmas. Yet, strangely, we're still holding on to the very things that that Jesus brings at Christmas. So it's kind of like keeping the gift and forgetting the giver, yeah. you know. So we have we have this sort of in our most modern Christmas films, which have nothing religious to say, are still reaching for what the original Christmas story was delivering, mm. you know. And I feel like that's why you can actually recognize some of these things because these themes keep coming back. We know we need them, but at the same time, we don't want to acknowledge where they come from. Yeah. And, and there's that disconnect. It's like guys like Tim Keller and Mark Sayers talk about how, you know, we want the kingdom, we don't want the king sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And in this case, you know, we want the gift. Uh, we just don't want the giver. Yeah. We want what Christ brings, but we don't want Christ with it. And so Christmas is full of things like that. There are, there are so many different themes that, that Christmas drives home, which are originally chased back to the Christmas story. I mean, take, for example, the family idea, like you mentioned in your particular Christmas film you walked in on, and nice dodging. I'm sure you turned that on and watched it yourself. But oh, just, oh <laughs> no. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare. I wouldn't, <laughs> oh, never. <laughs> well, I mean, think about the family bonds, mm. the idea that people come together and find their place in a in a family that might not otherwise be able to be joined together, but can be joined together at Christmas. Yeah, you know that might be separated by various and many pressures. Yet somehow, Christmas creates a family of all people. There's there's the and that family doesn't necessarily confine itself to just the flesh and blood members of a family, but the young woman you're talking about is the cook. Um, somehow gets in, included in that family as well. And in other stories, you find the gardener is included and, and the, the fellow workmates are included. And somehow, Christmas makes a family that we wouldn't otherwise have. Yeah. And that is well and truly a Christian theme, that somehow Christ comes and creates God's family. You know, with there's the Father, and by faith in Jesus, 
everyone joins this family. And that's what the the good news is at Christmas. You know, there's that's what the that the angels are singing about. You know, that God's favor mm. finally rests on on men and women. And so, you know, there, there's a, just one thing that that whole very popular theme of family. And you can go through. You can list them. You know, the idea of uh, gifts. Mm. You know, uh, find their value. Now, the original Christmas story is the original gifts story, but the gift that you really need gets picked up again and again in Christmas stories. You know, there's the one thing, I mean, you could probably imagine a dozen different Christmas films, and they'd all say the same thing about this gift, that this gift is going to be whatever it is in the plot line, it's going to be what's truly needed at yes. that time. It's what the child is really wishing for. It's what the family really needs. You know, it is this gift that is going to come home. And yet that that itself finds its basis in the original Christmas story, the gift that humanity really needs, you know, the Christ child who deals with the sin of the world. You know, this is, this is, so the Christmas story, the original Christmas story is not just another one of those tacky saccharine stories to be digested at Christmas time. It's actually the prototype. Mm. It's actually the story from which all of our Christmas stories flow out from. And you know, whereas now we just include it slotted along with a bunch of other stories that get told, but in uh, in the in the scheme of things, it really is the blueprint. Mm. You know, from which other stories take their joy, from which we feel joy from. Yeah, it's a very strange thing to think about that. There's a blueprint for a story that just keeps getting played out hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of times in these in these types of films, certainly, but also in other kinds of films, in books, in you know other kinds of storytelling, and they all have their basis on this one set of key events or or themes or a combination of however you would conceive of that, and many of them obviously get away from that original idea, the original, I guess, the end point of the story, you would say, of, you know, what do we do when we're confronted with the Christ child? You know, how do we respond to him? And, you know, that's part of what happens with the the shepherds and the magi and, and all that sort of thing. But really, we have all of these stories that are just kind of copies of a, a story that has already happened 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, as a scriptwriter, I find this fascinating because time and time again, we see stories being told in what we would call a heroic arc. Mm. We, there is a problem. The, the key character is introduced. There is a, a need for some form of deliverance. The hero is saved or, or somehow works out their own salvation and everything is right with the world. And this heroic arc, we seem to be tuned into, you know, we see it at Christmas films, but we see it in all sorts of films through the years. We just seem to appreciate it. And the, the more refined this arc becomes, the more we, we like it and, and respond to it. And I think that's because we were designed to appreciate, you know, this proto story mm. that we were, we were designed as human beings to understand that the most heroic thing a hero can do is to sacrifice themselves and to do so for the sake 
of not a great cause, but for other people, mm. you know, it, it, and that that salvation is going to come about because somebody is going to lay down their life to do it. Now, this is not uh, a Western culture thing. Mm. This is a story arc that finds itself in in um, Southeast Asian culture, in Chinese culture, in Japanese culture. You're going to find it in you know the Russian states. You're going to find it in European culture for certain, but African stories as well. There's this need for us to see a hero come into place, sacrifice something huge, usually their life, for the sake of everybody else, and that this is somehow going to resolve itself. Now, we see this writ large in green and red letters. At Christmas time, there's usually some sacrifice that needs to be made mm. so that peace can come about, so that there is actually going to be the the wholeness that we're looking for, you know, at Christmas time, and I don't think it's random. You know, I really don't think it's random. I think, as a Christian, I clearly believe in design, and I believe that God has just made our hearts receptive to that storyline, and so that's why a world that can reject God can still keep coming back to this storyline because. It's just how what we're made to appreciate. Mm. And so, again, we come back to that thought we were talking about earlier where we can want something and need ourselves at the same time for the sake of our autonomy to divorce ourselves from where that something really comes from. Mm. But we're never going to get away from it. We're never going to get away from it mm. just because it's who we're meant to be. Mm. I feel I feel a little bit like the 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 bridegroom at the wedding feast in Cana. We've got we've gotten to the best part. We've gotten to the best wine before we've gotten to the other. The, this is yeah. We've we've gotten to the core of it. Could we step back maybe a little bit and talk about some other elements in your article? You talk about hallmark Christmas films as sort of like the gold standard. They're kind of the originator, but they're obviously not the only player in town. Everybody copies hallmark and sort of the quote unquote formula, whether it's in, you know, Fiji or whether it's in North America, I've seen a lot of them over the years. One of the things that I, I wanted to touch on was we talking about a story in, in the original Christmas story of of conflict. We're talking about a story that requires a sacrifice. But one thing I have noticed is that though there is always a a heroic inflection point in each of these movies in order to resolve whatever's going on, there's a level of conflict that can never quite get to the, I guess, extreme level that, you know, you might expect from a superhero film or a thriller or something that's a little bit more mature or serious. There's a line that they seem to skate. Do you, could we talk a bit about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, like your your Christmas film, and of which you're right, the Hallmark films are probably, you know, the greatest example of this. They've honed their art and turned it into, you know, quite a quite a precise science, you know, Hall, the Hallmark channel. But you'll find the reflections of that art in all sorts of Christmas films. And generally speaking, they are going to confine things so that they don't get too explosive. Okay, because their overarching purpose is to show peace and reconciliation at Christmas. And so if it can't be solved, it's not the sort of thing that they're going to make a Christmas film about. Okay, so for example, they're not going to make this Christmas a film about the Middle East crisis, you know, because it can't be resolved, you know, as, as a Christmas film. Yeah. You're not going to see it come together neatly and tied up in a bow. But at some point, 
these Christmas films believe that the smallest scale issue can be solved. So you can solve a family crisis. You can solve an emotional sense of loneliness between you know someone who just finds themselves isolated at Christmas. And weirdly, these are actually very big and powerful things because they're our most felt need. Mm. They're, they're our very common experience. Not many of us are traveling to the Middle East. Not many of us are peace negotiators between countries or things like that. These big, almost insolvable things. Yet strangely, all of us know what loneliness is. Yeah. All of us know what family conflict is. And so even though um, Hallmark films and Christmas films don't seem to let it get too far out of control, the truth is they're dealing with things that are very, very real mm-hmm. you know, for us. Not being able to be at home for Christmas, not being able to be around those that we love, feeling impoverished or dissatisfied in some way, even if it's not financially just feeling the loss uh, of things at Christmas, these somehow can be united. And I think that's because what we ultimately, I mean, it's saccharine sweet, but what we ultimately long for at Christmas is love. You know, we, we want a, a resolution of conflict so that we can be in relationship and loving towards those who are around us. And that's wish fulfillment. You know, that's what these Christmas films do. They, they basically fulfill that wish for us and show us on the screen what we might actually struggle to find in our real lives. And so for a little while there, we get to, you know, feel that glow. It's the 20th anniversary, I'm pretty certain, it's the 20th anniversary this year of love, actually, oh, you know, wow. which is, yeah, I know. And it, it's, it's become a staple Christmas film about, how love works itself out in a range of different Christmas environments. Mm. And yet that's really what Christmas is about. It's trying to find access, love for all of us, which I might kick us back to our earlier point and say, you know, that's the interesting thing. A- again, where are we going to find in a Christmas story love that is, is sufficient for all of our needs and for all of us? Well, that's the original Christmas story. Mm. But here it is, writ large again in the 21st century, you can't have a Christmas film without the need for someone to feel reconciled and in love with, you know, other people. And it might be as simple as as one curmudgeon, you know, getting you know getting into a better relationship with the Scrooge next door, you know, <laughs> you, you or or the two least likely people in a firm ever to have, you know, uh, a stable relationship finding each other, you know, or a person who loves cats you know, getting together with a person who loves dogs. Right. You know, it, it, I mean, these Christmas stories have all these sorts of different themes, but really at the center of them is reconciliation and love. Okay. So what about this other um, trope that we see very often? And I have a feeling we're going to verge back into the rest sort of theme here. But the one that I see a lot is busy, busy, high-flying executive woman, let's say, has a, you know, has a very demanding job. Perhaps she's got a, a fiance. You know, they have a lifestyle. It's it's very you know we're we're aspirational. We're moving fast. We're making lots of money, but there's lots of demands, and it's all overwhelming. And so, she somewhat uh, reluctantly, let's say, goes home for Christmas. And there's a small country town, and she meets a lumberjack or a orchard owner or a baker. Maybe he makes croissant or something. <laughs> Something 
stereotypically very traditional, very laid back, very relaxed. And he he shows her an, a whole new lens of life. And it's not even just that they get together at the end of the movie. She makes often like a permanent decision to leave the old life behind and to find a new life in this town, which she's been searching for meaning perhaps this entire time. And she realizes, oh, well, I'm going to find the life that I've always dreamed of in this town, in this place, in this setting with this man, let's say. Mm. What is that mm. real? What is that about? Because that doesn't seem like real life most of the time. No, it, it doesn't. You know, most of us are not sort of giving up everything to somehow start a relationship over the other side of the planet or the other side of the city for that matter at Christmas time. No, but what it is, is a sense of, it's fulfilling a sense of absence. You know, we actually feel a, a sense of longing inside of us for something that, and in the sort of stories that you're telling, they're most often pictured as a missing person. You know, that what I actually need is this other person who's going to make me complete. And so it's the, as you say, it's the high-flying, driven, you know, executive female who finds herself in a situation where, you know, the male of her dreams happens to be the, the guy who's come to fix the water pipes yeah. or something like that, yeah. you know. And, and that's deliberate. Like, there are cross worlds, yeah. you know, there are different ends of society, and yet somehow they fit. But it's not just romantic relationships. You often find that, that the classic trope of getting home for Christmas you know, is somebody feeling the lack of the family, you know, who, who would embrace them or maybe one particular member of the family, like the father that they haven't spoken to or, or the mother who they've just been sending cards to but not really sort of communicating with. We're feeling this lack, this dislocation, and we need to film, feel that. And that is a personal thing. It's always personal. So, you know, it, it can be kids finally getting home to their parents. It can be um, unlikely characters, you know, finding that connection, but it's always going to be something filling that particular gap in our relationship. And I think that's intrinsic to the human experience. I think that no matter how many relationships we find ourselves in, we are always going to find ourselves feeling um, uh, as though there was a large piece missing somewhere. And when we find that piece, that relational piece, everything will be complete. And that's what drives people to move often from relationship to relationship. There's this myth that, that if they can just find the right person, they will somehow be happy. And so they are perpetually disappointed because the person they load their dreams and their desires down upon either eventually collapses under the weight of, of all that expectation, or in fact, what happens is that they just discover they have feet of clay and, and they're not everything they hoped they would be. And so the search begins again. And Christmas has something of that, that wish fulfillment idea that we will finally come home mm. and we will finally meet that person that represents home to us and we will feel complete and our isolation will be over. Now, yeah, I, I guess I do look back to the Christmas story for that because it is purely relational. There's nothing mechanical about the salvation that God offers. It's not just as it's not a just an exchange as though here's group A, you know, his creatures who have a problem with sin, here is the payment for that sin, 
and thereby, you know, the situation is resolved mm. and now God and man, God and humanity may be in a good relationship. No, it's really, really personal. You know, it is a relationship. It is God stepping out, firstly, dividing his own relationship with his son so that you know, we can enjoy a relationship with him. We are missing that. Yeah. You know, as one uh, writer once put it, there's a God-shaped hole in, in every human heart. And so we seek that in Christmas and we, we have that idealized idea that that person that will somehow turn up, you know, and we will somehow feel, and we want, even if it's not going to happen at the next family gathering we get to, <laughs> you know, it's, even if it's not going to happen, we want to believe in our entertainment mm. that it will happen. And, and that's, that's part of that trope is getting at that, that universal ache that somehow someone is going to make Christmas or our lives feel complete. And I guess now that I think about it, Christmas is like the perfect opportunity or the perfect time for that storytelling arc because you have the, you know, the days of anticipation of Advent, you know, where every day is coming closer to that ultimate day when you know, all of our dreams are going to explode and everything is going to be great and we're finally going to receive whatever it is that we're hoping for this whole time. You know, in some ways, I kind of I kind of want to see like a Christmas movie like the day after Christmas when they have to go back <laughs> to the real world and the consequences mm. of everybody's decisions are having to be worked out in, in real time, but that probably is not a very fun movie to to make. Well, I don't think it's going to sell too many tickets, no. but the, I mean, that's the, that's the truth of it. I mean, if you think about it, we've really settled for some pretty shallow stories. Yeah. The, the desire for completion has been diluted down into the desire for the right gift. Mm. The, the desire for real understood embracing fellowship has been diluted down to the family dinner. And, you know, it's the same with lots of these things. The, the, the desire for rest has been diluted down into one day off, mm. you know, and then mm -hmm. back to work the next day. You know, we don't, we don't do movies about the 26th of December, you know, yep. so it's, yep. or for that matter, in Australia, I guess that's a public holiday, but, you know, we're not talking, it's, it's not a, an ultimate rest. Yeah. And I feel like that's one of the sadder things you know, to do with our Christmas is that we understand the need we're thirsty, but we're trying to satisfy that mm -hmm. thirst with buckets with holes in the bottom. You know, it, it's just what we're using is is not, it tells us that it will satisfy us, but it's not actually going to do it. So like you look at a Christmas film and the minute you wake up and start thinking about real, you know, reality and how it might match our real lives, you know that it's only as thin as the paper that wraps the presents that, you know, we're, we're tearing apart. And it will not last yeah. the Christmas season. We'll all hit January or February, more likely February, where we'll go back to our jobs and we'll go back to our studies and we'll go back to just our, even our retiring lives, you know, won't be ones that will actually measure up, you know, to Christmas. It's thin on the ground, I think, this particular snow. And I, I'd, I'd hope for something a little more resilient. And, and maybe I might just say for a moment that really the films that come, that seem to last, that come closest to, to becoming classics are those that actually go deeper. So you think about things, you mentioned a little earlier in the interview, The Miracle on 34th Street. 
And that's basically about a, a little girl who learns to believe that there's still hope, you know, for Santa in, in this world, mm. that there's still room. And what that is, is not just, oh, good, there's somebody who's living at the North Pole who's going to bring presents, but rather there's a great desire there for a joy and a hope that survives our real world, you know. And so in that particular film, if anybody knows it, they'll remember that, you know, the entire US government is in some respects aligned to prove that there is no Santa. And yet somehow, somehow, you know, the legal system has to step back and say, yes, actually, there's room for hope here. Mm. And I feel like our most classic films suggest that there is something more Mm. than just Christmas fun. I mean, actually, I was talking, we were talking a little bit earlier before we got chatting on the show about things that are coming out this Christmas. And they are inane. Yep. You know, like one of the big films that will be released this year is Eddie Murphy in Candy Cane Lane. Right. You know, and that's basically about a man who makes a pact with an elf to help him win a neighborhood Christmas decorating contest. Now, you just cannot get any more inane <laughs> yep. than something like that. It's so bland. You know, it, it's just, I know, I mean, unless, of course, it's Genie, which comes out this Christmas, which seems to be this really weird mixture uh, of various sort of you know, mythical traditions. Uh, it's about a workaholic whose life is unraveled, unraveling at Christmas, and a genie comes along to win his family back. You, you know, know it, I mean, I don't know which. It's just, <laughs> I don't know what's going. But we're, we've settled for the inane. Yes, you know, we're 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 really going for the tinsel. Yeah, and we're missing we're missing the real gift, and that's that's a pity. Mm. But every now and again, something comes along, like we were talking about love, actually. Every now and again, a film comes along and touches a nerve, mm. and we go, what we really want at Christmas is some form of resolving, loving relationship, and that will make it worth what, worthwhile. Yeah. And yet, most of us will be satisfied with an Xbox, so yeah, yeah. You know, what, what can you do? It'll satisfy, <laughs> it'll satisfy the need for about five minutes, and that's what most of us, I think, are probably looking for at this point. <laughs> yeah. oh, Mark, I really want to go down a rabbit hole. I'm just not, I'm questioning whether it's a good idea, but I was, okay, I'll, I'll, we'll see, we'll, we'll try and keep it brief. So sure, sure. I'm sorry, just go with me on this one. You've, you've reminded me particularly, you know, mentioning Miracle on 34th Street, perhaps this is a feature of the post Marvel world that we live in where every movie seems to feel the need to be self-referential, to be sarcastic and to be in many ways, insincere. And I've, mm. I've been thinking about this a lot recently in the wake of the waning enthusiasm for the Marvel franchise and for other films that are trying to do the same sort of thing, to have that Joss Whedon sort of not going to take anything too seriously and we're actually going to kind of point out how everything's a little bit rubbish and everything's a little bit stupid because it's cool. It's cool to not be sincere. I recently watched a TV series called The Bear. I'm not sure if you've seen or if you're familiar with. No, I do know. I know the cooking show. The cooking show, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. About about this particular restaurant that the rest the brother is trying to take over and bring back after his own brother passed away. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Not a Christmas themed show. It's not. It's not about Christmas in any way, shape, or form. There is an episode that is like Christmas from Hell. Almost literally, like everything goes wrong. Uh, family violence, mental illness, literal violence. It's, it's, it's insane. And 
the best way that I would ever describe this show is if you if you enjoy being having anxiety constantly, then you'll love the show. <laughs> yeah, actually. No, no, look, that particular show, The Bear, which I believe is in its second season starting yes, now. Yeah. Yeah. The I was an early adopter and an early person to jump ship to because, you know, I find it very, very hard to relax with an anxiety attack. Yeah. So I, I find that, you know, as you go through it, it is, if you love that sort of sitting on the edge of a car crash and watching the vehicles slowly come together, then yeah, you'll, you'll love the bear. But I think one of the reasons why we are excited by these gritty, real views of life now why, is because we're trying to get rid of sentimentality. Yeah. Now, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, to some degree, we've, we've pushed the pendulum too far the other way. And everybody is as heroic as Captain America and everybody makes a speech and everybody dies on a battlefield and saves the world, you know, like Iron Man. Sorry if I've just spoiled a, a plot line for somebody, you know, but <laughs> that like, so the pendulum has swung yeah. about as far towards the sentimental as it possibly can. Mm. And now it's coming back the other way. And we're saying, well, reality is actually really, really grim. Mm. You know, in fact, it's far grimmer than anyone would would be happy to acknowledge and people who really know what's going on they're the people who realize that you know we're all in a pickle and and everything is just dark and so yeah you actually see the dc uh, universe is actually making a play for heroic films where half your characters are you know painted in shades of black you know it, it's quite uh, an attempt to try and touch base you know with this pessimistic view uh, of the world but it's it's a similar mistake, just the opposite mistake. Sentimentality suggested that everything could be meaningful and everything could be heroic and everything would would resolve well and tied up neatly in a bow. And then the the opposite pendulum swing, which we're involved in now, is to go all the other way and say nothing has meaning and nothing can be resolved and there will never be any peace. And the best you can hope for is just a quick gulp of air or a beer between crises you know and we this swing is going to be proven to be as dissatisfying as the sentimental swing yeah you know ultimately we're not going to be satisfied by this either because deep down in the human heart not only do we not do we realize that not everything is perfect and can be resolved neatly but we also realize that there is something out there like the very drive for a Christmas film is the the innate knowledge that there will be hope to be found somewhere, and the human heart won't let go of that. So after a while, this pessimistic bent is going to give way mm. because people just cannot live in a world where there is no hope, especially when intrinsically we believe there will be a way forward somewhere, that there's going to be something, there is going to be a resolution. So look, if if Iron Man was the hero, well, actually, Iron Man's probably not the best example, but if Captain America was the hero of the previous pendulum swing, then Deadpool is the hero of the current swing, mm. and we're going to find that there's a truth somewhere in the middle. And I think that's actually where Jesus lives because you know we've got a, a combination of both the the ultra hopeful, you know, higher and better and and more fantastic than we could ever have hoped to receive a piece that you know that we're looking for. There's this hero is going to deliver. 
yet at the same time, a hero who deals with the grittiest, the darkest, the most difficult real life problems. And so this is where Jesus sits, you know, right in the center of these pendulum swings, you know, which gives me hope actually Mm. that somewhere along the way, we are going to realize we're going to have some form of renewal. Some people might call it a revival, that there's going to be an appreciation of what Jesus actually offers. But, you know, these things don't last. So who knows? Yeah. I love what a lot of the civil rights campaigners used to preach and talk about in the 60s, that the arc of the universe is toward justice, that no matter how dark things get, no matter how many injustices we face, that eventually the the arc of the universe is moving toward a place of justice. And I think that points toward a, a destination that is hopeful, where we can finally see the resolution of not just our own not insignificant, but our own personal issues, but also some of the larger issues like the ones that we've already, you know, we've mentioned in this episode, like the massive geopolitical issues that we're seeing right now in the Middle East, that one day, both we and the world will be redeemed and restored. And I love that, you know, we can point to the story of Christmas, even though it's been fabricated and replicated so many times in so many inane ways and say, you know what, it all started there. And, you know, God is still working out the the story even as we speak. Mm. One final question, perhaps the most important question of all, Mark, around in and around the Christmas period, what movie or perhaps or TV show do you want to see on your on your TV oh, screen this this holiday season? What do I want to see? Look, that's a really good question. I if you're asking me what is being released that I want to see, then you'll probably find me looking forward to something historical. Okay. And I know this sounds weird, but like Napoleon's coming up, mm. for example, and I'm interested in seeing that. And one of the reasons I'm interested in seeing that is because historically speaking, you know, it is hard to get away from real truths. You know, we often, firstly, I find them to be palatable because you know, there's so much in the way of language that you don't have to worry about, you know, a historical film, <laughs> yeah. things like that. But also you're going to get big sweeps in history with big points to be made. And I find that that to be, you know, fertile ground for real meaning and real life lessons. There's a type of plot. I mean, there are, if people don't mind me rambling on just for a second, there are three basic types of plot that we, we deal with when we write scripts. And the first one is the chess game. And everybody's familiar with the chess game. It's basically man versus man or woman versus woman, you know, or teacher versus student. Or sometimes it's even as obscure as fisherman versus storm. But there's a move and a counter move. And someone comes up with the next play, but they're frustrated by the next step. There's the chess game. Then right up there with the chess game is the quest. And often many Christmas films are the quest. You know, somebody has got to get home for Christmas. Someone has got to get the present for the kids. Somebody has got to win the heart of someone. Someone has got to get the job, which will allow them to have the Christmas bonus, to put the pool in. Yes, I'm talking about National Lampoon's vacation. So, you know, a holiday vacation. So you've got these quest films now, which are really quite normal. But the film I am looking forward to seeing this Christmas is called the life lesson film okay and that is the film where at the end of it 
we have realized something which everybody can nod to and say that is true. Okay, it's not it's not saccharine sweet, it's not doubtful, it's not pessimistic. It's actually something we can all say that is true. It's the life lesson plot. And if I'm looking forward to a film this Christmas, I'm looking forward to a film that will actually touch on something that is true, uh, something that is timeless. And you know, for me, it will be something that says we have a need, uh, and that need needs to be fulfilled by someone other than ourselves. Or it'll be something that says, you know, peace is there, and we know our need for it, but we need help to get there. We can't quite reach it ourselves. These life lessons are valuable things, and stories and films do a wonderful job of affirming to them. So this Christmas, you know, I want to be affirmed. I want to actually remember, even from a non-Christian point of view, I want to be reminded that there are truths out there. Not we don't live in a universe where you know everything truthful is up for negotiation, your truth and my truth, but rather that there are fundamentals. And the human story is one of actually reaching for those fundamentals, which is why, you know, you probably won't be unhappy if I reach back to Christmas and say that there's a fundamental truth there that is being dealt with. And that is that we have a colossal problem, but there is a solution, Mm. you know, and yeah, I'd look forward to films like that. Mm. Wonderful. Well, I hope that you receive your wish or your gift or however, (laughs) however you want to phrase it. Thank you very much, Mark, for the time you spent. Thank you for the article. I hope you have a a wonderful Christmas with your family. I hope you have a Christmas with your family on December yes, 25th. We'll, we'll, we'll have one. <laughs> we'll have one. Yeah. Put down. There'll be no snow. No, no. <laughs> mm. No. It's a, it's, it's a bit of a problem in this part of the world, but we'll see. <laughs> hey, thank you, mate. Really appreciate your work and can't wait to see what you put out for us next. Always happy to, Jesse. I'll see you in the next chat. This episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A print subscription is $28 a year or just $14 for a digital subscription. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. This is an Adventist media podcast.